All right, thank you guys for coming and thanks to those of you who are joining on stream. Welcome to the last uh, Summer Logos gathering for this, for this summer. Uh, we will, the, I guess, yeah, the first, the first uh, session we, uh, Kevin actually taught uh, uh, and then the second session was a, a Q&A uh, uh, on the topic of work, finance, and education. And this time we're actually going to be going through um, the topic of relationships. And this is all within the context of biblical decision making, if you guys recall. Um, and so, yeah, I'm going to start off by uh, just starting with the word of prayer. And then uh, I'll read a passage in scripture. And then we'll go right into the questions. Uh, so let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much for this time that you've set apart for us, uh, for the elders and JC to uh, tackle some of the questions that were raised uh, by the congregation uh, on the topic of relationships. Lord, we pray for tonight that uh, your word would be, be preached, uh, that your word would be proclaimed, that the truth's in your word, um, and Lord, that uh, you would speak through uh, Ted, Kevin, and JC uh, not from their own wisdom, but from uh, the truths that are contained in your word uh, on this topic of relationships. We know that um, relationships are everywhere around us. We, we can't avoid them in any way. And uh, Lord, there are difficult circumstances in terms of relationships for, um, for some of us in, in different walks of our lives. And Lord, we just pray that uh, you would help us uh, to have a better understanding of what you call us to do uh, in these different uh, difficult circumstances. And we pray that tonight, um, with the truths that are proclaimed, Lord, that we would walk away um, changed and uh, that we would seek to, uh, to please you in these different relationships that we have. So we thank you again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. If you guys would turn with me, we're going to re be reading from Colossians chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 12 through 17, just to start off our time. All right, Colossians 3, chapter 12, or chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All right, thank you. So we will be jumping into our questions, and we'll generally be going in the order that it was submitted, but we'll be grouping some of the questions by topic. And so the first couple questions actually are um, about young or dating couples or engaged couples. And so... Um, I'll just be asking the questions and then, you know, for any, it's open for any or all of you three to, to answer. So uh, the first one is, for dating or engaged couples, how can both the men and women pursue purity? Anyone want to start that off? Why don't we go 
who's the latest to get married? I think that'd be me. (laughs) You're closer to the situation. Why don't you go first? Yeah. Um, You know, I I think before you get into any sort of practical nuts and bolts of how do you really preserve purity in a relationship, it really does start. And then, you know, it it almost sounds cliche, but, and you all know this, but we have to say it. it. It all starts with, you know, where is Christ in your heart? You know, is he first? And do you desire Christ's holiness more than your relationship, right? And not that those things are mutually exclusive, you have to choose one or the other, but does your relationship come under submission to Christ and his holiness and his lordship? And that's where it starts. Um, So I do think that, you know, evaluating yourself and whether you desire that holiness um, is a starting point. I also think if we're talking about a dating relationship here, also just asking one another, okay, is Christ and his holiness our priority in this relationship or is it ourselves and what we want and and our own pleasure, right? And being able to answer that honestly um, before each other and before the Lord. Um, And if there is repentance necessary there, then you need to turn and repent from that. So I, I do think that it has to start there. Um, without that, you know, what is purity worth if it's not for Christ's holiness, right? Um, so it has to start there. Um, but if we were to get into sort of the practical nuts and bolts of purity, I think it, it really boils down to, you know, walking in the spirit, you know, putting off the flesh and putting on the spirit. So Galatians 5, 16 to 17, but I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So Paul calls us to put on the Spirit, right? Um, To be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. And if you've come to our church for any amount of time, you know what that means. You know, if you are filled with the Spirit that means you are filled with his word because the spirit of God and the word of God work in conjunction with each other and they work hand in hand. So that means walking with the spirit in every regard uh, of walking in the spirit and keeping his word, not just in the purity aspects of it, but in all of it because it all comes together. You can't say, oh, I'm obeying this part of God's word. I'm sensitive to the spirit in this part of God's word, but not in this other one. It's the whole package that comes along. And conversely, put off the flesh. Right? That's sort of the negative aspect of it. The other side of things, we put on the spirit, we are filled with the spirit, but then we put off the flesh. And when I say put off the flesh, that would obviously include you know, things like you know, overt sexual immorality and you know, the things that we view. Um, are there like uh, explicit scenes or anything like that? Anything that kind of draws that aspect of our flesh. But it includes a lot more than that too. Are we putting off the flesh in its entirety? And if we ask, okay, what does that mean? Paul actually gives us a list here, and it's helpful to go through that. Um, he talks about uh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like that. So yes, that list does include things that are just you know, overtly sexualized, but look what else is in that list. Jealousy, strife, anger, dissension, division, 
and things like these, right? Are we also putting off those things in our lives as well? Because we may not think that they're related to our struggle for purity, but they absolutely are, because those are the things of the flesh, and they oppose the spirit. And walking in the spirit is really our best protection um, as far as purity is concerned. Thanks, Kevin. JC, Ted, anything you guys wanted to add? Oh yeah, to, um, yeah, totally agree with Kevin. Um, as Kevin mentioned that we have to keep God's word and Psalm 119 verses nine to 11 says, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart, I seek you. Uh, let me not wander away, wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the issue of purity is that it's, yes, you have a, what, you're, in, um, you're engaged or um, you're dating someone, but ultimately it's your relationship with Christ first. And so if you are not walking well with Christ, no matter how much accountability you do, you talk to your disciple or being shepherded, but if your private walk with God, right, if you have thoughts, Right? If you're not keeping God's word and if you're harboring lustful thoughts, right? even though you're not acting on them, right? God knows that. Your discipleship group leader might not know that. Your elders might not. But God knows that, what's going on in your heart. But you know, there's hope right? that God gives us his word so that we can be, um, you know, so that he can reveal to us his will. And remember that we, it's about um, our relationship with God. And uh, it just comes to mind uh, two uh, men in the Bible who faced temptation, yet two responses. Joseph and King David, right? First uh, Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. So when Joseph was tempted by Mrs. Potiphar, right? Potiphar's wife. You know, what did Joseph say? He said, oh, this is bad, you know, Mrs. Boifar. He didn't stop there. He said, you know, I don't want to sin against God, you know. He even fled. Like, he literally, he did something physically, right? So what King David did, but, oh, he saw Bathsheba, right? No one, he thought that he was alone, but God sees him. And yet he did not flee, right? Joseph did not say to Mrs. Potiphar, hey, Mrs. Potiphar, what you're saying is wrong. Let me open God's word and tell you in Scripture why it is wrong. No, he said he, uh, he fled, right? So my point is that um, if you know uh, practically, let's say you're going to go to the house, you're dropping off your girlfriend or you're, you know, someone you're dating, and you know the parents are not at home, right? Or for the engaged couples, like... Um, you know, you have an apartment, you're renting an apartment, and you're moving in, you know, oh, no one's going to be there. It's just the two of us. You know, right? And so you have to be, just like in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee, be proactive, like Joseph. Like, okay, so I will have guardrails. I'll text my discipleship group leader. You know, that, that attitude of heart attitude, Lord, I don't want to sin against you. You know, I, I just want, you know, I'll have, I'll, I'll follow your word and I will trust in you. So, yeah, so that's, yeah.
Thanks, guys. Ted, anything you wanted to add? Yeah, to I'll just really quickly say what these guys said a little bit differently. Um, yeah, I think there's a tendency, and both of these guys just sort of alluded to it, to, to sort of reduce purity to a set of rules, right? And I, I recall when I was first dating, my first thought was, okay, what am I going to do? What are all the parameters and boundaries we're going to put so we don't stumble, right? And perhaps I learned it from other guys who'd been dating before me, and and yet, you know, when Christ says in Matthew 22, you know, what's the greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Right, on these two commandments depend all the, hall, all the law and the prophets. Right, so there's, there's an aspect of love that's missing when we just reduce this pursuit of purity to a set of rules. You miss out on the fact that all these rules, just like the Pharisees missed it, just like the Israelites missed it, it's just a set of rules that we have to follow when underneath all of the laws that God was, had given to us to follow is we're to, to love the Lord with everything that we are and everything that we have, ultimately, right? And the second is like it, we are to love one another, right? Love our neighbors as ourselves. And so... I think to boil down, when we struggle with purity, we struggle to love the Lord as we're to, we're called to. You know, when we struggle with purity, we struggle to love our neighbors as ourselves. And when we see it in that light, we recognize where we need to repent. It's not, well, I need to put up these boundaries and I need to do better. It's, Lord, forgive me, for I don't love you the way I ought to. I don't love my sister in Christ the way I, I don't love my brother in Christ, right? And, and the way we have to tackle that is, as Kevin mentioned, you know, walking in the spirit, as JC mentioned, fleeing from uh, idolatry. Um, another one, Romans 13, 8, you know, Paul speaking to the Roman church. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Okay? And then he goes on to say, you know, the hour has come to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us than we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but what? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire, right? You see the connection to Ephesians 5 of walking in the Spirit is the same thing as putting on the Lord Jesus Christ as you recognize that all these things are connected to loving the Lord with all our hearts and loving our neighbors as ourselves. You know, if we're truly believers and we submit to the Lordship of Christ, that's what we pursue is, is the love of God and the love of others. And purity falls under that. Yeah, thanks guys for just bringing it back to our relationship with God and uh, really walking in the spirit and allowing the word to, to dwell in us richly. And our relationships are to be an expression of, of love for, for the Lord, love for one another and um, yeah, desire to obey, obey the Lord. So thank you. Um, one, there's one more question on the topic, I guess, for young couples. Um, the question is, how can young couples grow in communication and set good patterns early on before the arrival of children 
which often seemed to amplify whatever issue was there before. I don't know who wants to start this one off, but... I'll start off. Um, I'm hesitant because I don't think I'm the best at this. Um, <laughs> um, you know, the communication is something that I, I definitely struggled with very much so at the beginning of our marriage, and I still do. So I, I don't come at this from, you know, the perspective of someone who's got this figured out. But, you know, I do know the principles that, you know, the scriptures um, tell us and what I, I strive for as well. And really, one of the principles at play is just that you and your spouse are one, right? And when you're one, that means that you, nothing is really held from each other, right? Um, you share uh, essentially everything. So their problems are your problems. Their joys are your joys. There are no really secrets between you and your spouse. Um, so in general, whenever there is a pattern of being separate or independent from one another um, in a marriage, then that's something that you really need to take a step back and like, consider, okay, is this really healthy, what's going on here? The, the direction of being separate versus being one. And then that's kind of a general principle, of course. Um, as for communication, you know, as someone who struggles to communicate much at all, um, I think uh, for me it, it was helpful just to, you know, try to communicate early and often. And I think this especially helps, you know, early on in marriage if things come up, you know, little annoyances or things like that, to just not let those things sort of build up, but to address them early and address them frequently. And I think that's part of the principle behind, you know, do not let the sun go down your anger, that type of thing as well. But I think it can be summed up in keeping your accounts short. Right, and what do I mean by that? I mean that you know every time something happens, there is a tendency and a temptation, at least for me and maybe for uh, some of you as well, to just kind of sweep it under the rug, right, and to not deal with it, not say, not communicate anything, not resolve those things, and just kind of leave them there. But over time, you just kind of sweep those things under the rug. But you know, mentally, you're kind of keeping a ledger of like, okay, there are all these things, right, that I'm, you know, not dealing with, not resolving all those things. And over time, you know, something happens and then the whole ledger comes out as like ammunition, you know, against the other person. And how is that reflective of a Christ-like marriage, right? If there's like ammunition that you're storing against one another, that's not. So I think this idea of keeping your accounts short and, you know, the concept of um, 1 Corinthians 13.5, the passage about love, um, one of the characteristics of love is love keeps no record of wrong. What ledger? What ledger is there if we keep no record of wrong, keeping your account short, right? So, you know, as we do those things, um, that really preserves the oneness of a marriage relationship. So I think uh, as far as that's concerned, and, and you know, even... In the meantime, like while you're storing up all these things, right, that will produce separation. It doesn't require a blow-up moment for there to be separation in your marriage, right? But just if you are not keeping your account short, then you can notice almost invisibly there is a rift that happens between two people, right? And it can start off very subtly, you know, but then over time you realize, oh, wait a second, we're not one, 
right? And it be it happens because you know we fail to communicate and resolve those things in a biblical manner. So maybe that's one aspect of communication to to discuss. Thanks, Kevin, Ted, JC. Anything you guys wanted to add there? I would I would commend you to JC's teaching on biblical conflict resolution. I think that's something I'm still working on, you know, and just, yeah, I, you know, for those who were, who were there, I mean, it's, all the principles are there, it's just a matter of applying it, you know, in our day-to-day lives, you know, and not just after we get married, but, you know, even with our roommates, you know, uh, with our family members, um, yeah, at the end of the day, uh, pursuing, you know, Christ and his glory above wanting our needs met or desires fulfilled. Um, you know, Ephesians 4 <laughs> comes to mind, you know, talks there about, you know, putting off, putting on, putting off, putting on, right? And that's setting a pattern of putting off the things, you know, the old man, and putting on the new man, right? That we're in Christ. It's in the midst of that, <clears throat> that Paul says, right? <coughs> Let no corrupting talk come out of your ha- mouth but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give, give grace to those who hear, right? Well, let no corrupting talk. I mean, that's anything that's unwholesome, right? It's not just bad language. It's not just curse words, right? It's, it's things that don't build up, things that tear down, right? Slander, um, a harsh word, um, you know, it might be the truth, but it's not just, it's not spoken in love. Um, and so those are things that we're to put off and then we're to put on things that give grace to those who hear, right? And oftentimes we don't think about our words. We don't think about how we're communicating. We're just, you know, especially for men, it's just like, well, get the point across. No matter how it comes across, it's just, it's the truth, right? Um, but have we stopped to think about, well, does it extend grace? Right. I think that's a deeper question, and I think that's one that's convicting for my own heart, too, because, you know, oftentimes it's like, you know, even in talking to my own kids, you know, Kevin, you say you struggle. So do I with my own kids and my wife as well. You know, it's like, well, here's the truth, but is it, in a, is it done in a way that gives grace to them? Or does it shoot them down? Or does it, you know, discourage them or exasperate them, right? And so... Um, yeah, Ephesians 4 is a place I would, you know, uh, meditate on. Yeah, I was about to quote that, Ted. But, um, yeah, to uh, piggyback on what Ted mentioned, in the context of Ephesians 4, the put off and put on, in verse 28, Paul puts there a verse, and I'll just read it to you guys. Let the thief, so after the put off, put on, right? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. It's like, wait, why did Paul like, put it that, that verse? But basically, um, when does a thief stop being a thief? Usually people will say, oh, when he stops stealing. But in the Bible, it says here, when he shares with someone. Same thing with the liar. When does the, the liar stop becoming a liar. It's not when he stops lying. It's when he speaks the truth, the truth, right? Similarly for us, um, for the 
married couples, it's not the absence of conflict that determines how good your communication is. If there's no conflict, oh, we're good, you know. There's no conflict, we're good. It's about how proactive you are. Similarly as the thief who shares with those who are in need, the, pre, the liar who got saved, who now speaks the truth, for the married couples, are you intentional in speaking the truth in love? And that's the context of Ephesians 4 as well. Paul states that, speak the truth in love. So for us, and what Ted mentions about putting off, we have old habits, right? And what Kevin alluded to, like, I, you, you know, when I got married, it's not like, oop, I'm a changed man now, you know? What you do, how you speak to your housemates, and like what Ted mentioned, how you speak to your family members, don't think that being in love, getting married, will all of a sudden change how you communicate. You start now, even when you're not married. Because your old habits, you will bring that in your marriage, right? So the Lord, in His graciousness, allows us to be sanctified. He puts certain circumstances in our lives to expose what's in our hearts, right? All those old habits, the old man, right? In Ephesians 4. And that is God's grace for us to show to us, okay, I need to grow in this aspect, in my communication. So, for example, for me, um, like Kevin, like, you know, I'm, I'm not like a good, like, I, I'm still growing in my communication with Kat. You know, being a listener, I thought I was a good listener until like, oh, man, like Kat said something. And there was one time we had a talk, this is years ago, and this was like when we had Seth. And Seth was like a baby. And she would say things. And then there was one day she just said, you're, you're not listening. I was like, no, I listen, but you're not doing it. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I need to grow in maturity, basically, you know. So for me, being a listener, um, and maybe for most husbands, too, being a good listener. <laughs> but anyway, the point is that um, we all need to grow in Christ-like maturity. That's Ephesians 4, as Ted mentioned. It's not just the without conflict. It's good. No how Christ-like you are in your communication, speaking the truth in love. And you don't have to wait that you're married or dating. You do it now. How, how, are, how are you speaking with your housemates, your family members? So, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, thanks for bringing up passages like Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 13. And I think, you know, something that was implied in all of your answers was um, our communication is to be grounded in truth, right? We, we communicate uh, based on God's truth and you know I think very very important to point out yeah speaking the truth in love and you know in a way that is building up our you know our significant others for for those who are you know young couples or, or dating couples so yeah thank you guys um, moving into a different topic this is on uh, I guess the umbrella is kind of friendships and co-worker relationships um, so the first question is what are some things to consider in evaluating and growing our current friendships uh, for singles and marrieds? I don't know who wants to take that first one, but. Um, I can start with friendships. I think it's, um, 
It's one that when you're saved, you know, it's kind of what we've been going through, you know, this summer on, on the topic of unity and what the church is. You know, those things are connected. When you're saved, you start to define things um, according to God's work, right? And so before we're saved, we think of friends a certain way, right? But when we become saved and part of his church, we think of friends in a very different way. And Christ in John 15, 13 says this, greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Right? You sit there and you think about that. Wow, that's how Christ defined who his friends are. If I belong to Christ, if I'm part of his church, and what he says and what he desires and what he ordains is what I should pursue, then now my friendships really become about pursuing those relationships in which hopefully I'm being encouraged to obey God's command and I'm encouraging others to obey God's command, right? And where does that happen? Well, it happens in the church, right? And so it's not to say we can't have friends and we don't have friends outside of the church, but we see sort of Christ laying out what are the priorities, right? And so I can say even in my own life, as I've grown as a believer, right, my close friends are no longer people I shared a common experience with in the past, right? And that's typically how we think of friends. Well, I've known this guy for 20 years. We went to little, you know, we played little league together, you know, grew up together, whatever, in the same neighborhood, right? So he's my best man, right? He's my best friend because he's my best, well, he's my best man because he's my best friend. I've known him the longest. We shared so many experiences in life. Well, that's not how Christ defines friendships, right? And so, I could say even in my own life, over the years, I've, as I've matured, the, the, the people who are close to me are those uh, who are really running after Christ, right? They're not necessarily peers, although I, I do have good friends who are peers. They are people who are mature in Christ. They are oftentimes godlier, more mature men in my life. Um, and, and they're people of the church. And so... I think that naturally happens as you desire the things of Christ, as you grow in maturity. Uh, I have a long ways to go. I'm not saying I'm there yet, but uh, that's something that we uh, think about. James 4, 4 is another one. It says, you know, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Right? There's, they're mutually exclusive. You can't be friends with the world and friends with God. It's you can't have both, right? And so, who are you truly friends with, right? And, you know, if you look throughout Proverbs, we've been going through that book club, you see it talks a lot about friendships. Who are friends, right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? Friends are those who offer counsel that is in line with God's word. Um, it's not necessarily defined the way the world defines friendships, right? And so, I think that's something to consider, you know, for Singles, you know, I would say, think about who your friends are, right? Are you pursuing those friendships in which you just share common experience and you have fun and all that? Or are these people who are pursuing, helping you pursue Christ more? Are you inviting correction? Are they people who speak the truth and love in your life? Could they, are they godly people? Or are they people of the world, Right? Newly married, I would even say, you know, there's a temptation for guys especially. You think 
you get discipled all the way up to the wedding day, you get married, all of a sudden you're called to be the leader in the home. I can take it over from here, right? I don't need any friends. My best friend's my wife anyway, right? And to a certain extent, that's true, right? She sees your, you know, ins and outs and she loves you. But, man, do we have biblical friendships in the church? You know, those who spur you on toward Christ, right? Those who follow God's commands and encourage you to do the same through their example. Um, I think there's a tendency because of maybe just a spirit of self-sufficiency or self-righteousness that we don't need friends the moment we get married, and that's not true. And I think the ladies, maybe you guys are a little bit ahead of the men in, in this way because I see a lot of biblical friendships in this church. But, you know, just to call out the men, and I consider myself among you, you know, where are our friendships where we're really helping each other pursue Christ? Yeah, you know, as, as Ted was sharing, you know, just nodding along in agreement because, yeah, I, I think there needs to be a little bit of a paradigm shift, you know, um, as far as our concept of friendship is largely defined by our experience, right? You know, who we grew up with, who we had fun with, you know, now it may be like who we like vibe with, who speaks the same language as us, right? But those are all very man-centered ways of thinking about it, right? Now, when we consider the kinds of relationships that we ought to have with one another, um, as far as how the scriptures talk about it, it's really, you know, are we pointing and directing each other towards Christ, who is, you know, the one who laid down his life for us, right? And greater love has no one than this, than he who laid down his life for his friends, as, as Ted quoted. Um, so, you know, I would say to the, the question referenced, how do you evaluate your friendships? You know, I wouldn't necessarily say it's those who get, you get along with or those who you vibe with. It's really, okay, who are the people who are willing? You know, we've mentioned Ephesians 4 many times already, but who's willing to speak the truth and love to you and to point you towards Christ, right? That's what we're supposed to be doing as the church, you know, pointing each other towards Christ through his word so that we're all built up into maturity in him, right? So who is doing that for us? Are we a friend? Are we doing that for the people in our lives? And, you know, as we do that for one another, I think there will be a natural, like, you know, um, uh, getting close to one another as we typically, you know, talk about that. <clears throat> I think there was a bug situation over there. <laughs> um, but um, I, I think that, yeah, it starts with speaking the truth in love and those one another's that the scriptures call us to do, right? Um, a passage that comes to mind, Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and believing heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So there's this aspect of our commonality in Christ and that being the basis of our friendship, but there's also this aspect of, yeah, that involves exhorting one another, right? Because that's how we change and that's how we grow. Thanks, guys. Uh, Jason, yeah, anything I have you nothing to add. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for just kind of bringing it back to how Christ defined friendships and, you know, not evaluating friendships based on how the world might, right, which is very self-centered, right? It's, do, do I feel good around these people? But really, um, how are the people in my life pointing me back towards Christ? And, 
um, speaking the truth in love. So thank you for that. Uh, the next question, this one is on coworkers. What are some practical ways to build relationships with coworkers with the ultimate goal of sharing the gospel? Yeah, just to maybe continue off of our discussion of, you know, friendships, you know, I, I don't think that you need to be you know, best friends with your coworkers in order to share the gospel. Um, and I, I think you can, you know, share the gospel with someone whom you just met, right? So it's not necessarily a prerequisite, I would say. So that out of the way, I do think there, there are some benefits to uh, just having those touch points and having those relationships with the people that you work with. So yeah, I would say, you know, if you can, the time that you spend with your coworkers, but I will say this, that our spending time and hanging out and deepening our relationship with our coworkers cannot come at the compromise of us following Christ. What do I mean by that? Um, you know, oftentimes there's, there are some compromises that can come in, you know, like, yeah, I want to spend all this time with my coworkers, but okay, to hang out with my coworkers after work, oh, I'm going to have to be late for this Bible study at church. Okay, how do you weigh that, right? Well, I would think, in our minds, we may think, well, it would be a better testimony if I spend the time with the coworkers, right? Actually, no, I don't think so. Um, because our testimony is that, hey, this is what I prioritize. I prioritize being with the people that Christ has called because I love him and I want to hear his word. And that can be a better testimony. And that may not lead to a better relationship or friendship as we define it with our coworkers, but it's a better testimony because it shows the gospel at work, changing our desire, changing our hearts, changing our priorities. And that is a better testimony, right? Um, and obviously also if things, if let's say, you know, coworkers are out, you know, drinking after work and that violates my own conscience, then obviously, then I'm not going to do that. We can't compromise the things that, um, you know, that, that the Lord convicts us of uh, when it comes to those things. But, you know, we do also have the example of Christ, you know, in bringing the good news to us. He was present with us. Right? And that aspect is important too. So there's an aspect of having those opportunities to share the gospel, and we can't do that if we're not present with people. Uh, but there's also the aspect of the gospel being shown in the way that we live our lives, right? And yes, that means being kind, being friendly, being all those things, but I think more so it shows what do I value more than anything else in this world? And that's Jesus Christ, right? And that may not mean that you have all the same hobbies with your coworkers and, you know, and all those things, but it does mean that they see you in their lives and that there is an aspect of, okay, I know what he's about or I know what she's about. That's very, very clear. So, yeah, I, I would say um, just live as a Christian. That's what it boils down to, honestly, to, to live as a Christian amongst your coworkers. Thanks, uh, JC. Ted, anything you wanted to add to that? Um, yeah, that's a um, yeah. I agree. And you know, in First Peter uh, chapter three, verse thirteen, um, you know, Peter addresses this to uh, Christians who are who are suffering um, among like pagans, basically. Um, and so here's his encouragement. Uh, now, First uh, Peter. 
First Peter 3, chapter uh, 13 to 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who reviled your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So it says here, it's about obeying Christ, setting Christ as Lord, right? Um, as holy. Uh, and your coworkers will see that. So for example, during lunch break, they gossip about your boss. And then you're kind of like, oh, not participating from that. They will, they will observe that. Your work ethic, they will see that, how you work. Um, you know, it's how we, it's, the question is about practical ways. I would, it's not just a way, it's about our walk with Christ, how we value and treasure Christ. They will see what, where we put our hope in. Do we put our hope in our salary, in our 401k, right? Uh, when we talk to our boss about our salary or, you know, do they see greed there? They, they will see that, you know. Um, so basically, your coworkers, let's say you are doing well financially or you have, you know, family or, yeah, you're doing well in your work and you say, yeah, I'm a believer. They might believe you. Yeah, they might, okay, that's great. But when they see that you are suffering for doing what is good, when they see, let's say your, your boss shouted at you, but you're not gossiping. You're not like responding in the way how the world would respond. They will notice that. They will see, oh, wow, our company's, company's benefits, uh, they remove this benefit from the company. I don't know, lunch. I don't know, transportation allowance. I don't know, or wellness, you know, day or whatever. So what, what's the, your coworker's response? They will complain, right? Oh, you know, why are they removing this benefit from us? But if they see you're not complaining, right? You're thankful. You're walking in the spirit, like what Kevin mentioned, that you're loving, that there's still joy in you, that there's peace, right? They will see that. And then when you say, yeah, I'm a believer, they will like, wow, wow. It's like they will see that we are not, um, yeah, like the world, as Ted mentioned a while ago. So, yeah, setting Christ as Lord uh, as holy in your life. So, yeah, again, it goes back to loving Christ and of trusting and obeying Him. That's what we just read you know, earlier. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ right, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, right? It's the power of the gospel in us, right, as both of these guys mentioned. I think, add to that, in the power of prayer, right, how often do we pray for our co-workers? How often do we pray for ourselves that we would live a life above reproach so that we can represent, reflect Christ wherever we are, 
right? Are we living out that life and are we depending on the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but also to, you know, for our coworkers, also for opportunities to come up, you know? Um, I mean, just small example, you know, just as kids are transitioning to school, things like that, just been praying for gospel opportunities, you know, and we found out the other day, you know, we're going to be carpooling with a couple neighbors. Um, Isaiah's going to be going to a Christian private school, but these two families that we'll be carpooling with, they don't go to church. They're going to the school because of the academics or whatever the school has to offer outside of chapel and all that. And I was like, praise the Lord, here's an opportunity. I get to drive them 15 minutes every single day, get to know them, but hopefully share the gospel, invite them to church, right? So if we are praying for these things, the Lord will provide opportunities, conversations that come up. But it starts with prayer and, and looking to the Lord of the harvest, right? He's the one that says, harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So what are we supposed to do? Pray to the Lord of the harvest, right? And so even in our workplace, to see that as a harvest field, and we're to pray that the Lord would provide opportunities for us to share Christ through our, the testimony of our lives, but also through conversations that may uh, arise. Thanks for yeah, the reminder to, to always be in prayer for these people that we come in contact with. And, you know, it's not necessarily the little ways that, little activities that we do with the people, but it's more our conduct and how we, yeah, how we react in certain situations and how we're set apart from how perhaps the rest of the world or unbelievers may act. So thanks for those reminders. Um, okay, this one is the last one on uh, the friendships and coworkers. Uh, there may be some overlap here, but I'll, I'll let you guys decide how to answer it. Um, how, do you, how do you peacemake with unbelieving friends or coworkers? Uh, how do you know when you need to walk away from a friendship with, un, with uh, unbelieving friends or professing believers? Do we walk away when they become a stumbling block? Um, I think first, we do need to acknowledge that you might not be able to make peace. Um, right? That's a reality, right? If there is someone who is opposed to Christ and opposed to the gospel, you know, certainly you can seek to, the scriptures call us to, you know, as far as it depends on you, I seek to live peaceably with everyone, right? But I think there's a, even a little implication in that verse, as far as it depends on you, sometimes it may not be possible, right? If someone's opposed to Christ and you are, Christ is your master and you're devoted to Christ, then there won't be true peace there, right? And I think we need to be prepared for that. You know, it's not peace at all costs, um, Right, but that said, we should absolutely strive and seek peace, um, and not let anything other than the gospel and our following of Christ and the gospel be the stumbling block. Right, the gospel will be a stumbling block to those who are perishing. That's just the reality of it. But we don't have to add things as a stumbling block to the gospel as well. So Romans twelve, I think, is a good starting point. If you just start in Romans 12 and keep reading, it has a lot to say about these things. Um, you know, it says, uh, not repaying evil for evil, returning good for evil. That's one way that we can respond, you know, to not having peace with unbelieving coworkers or, or whoever else. It means not avenging yourself, but leaving that to God. 
Um, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Overcome evil with good. These are the things that the scriptures give us if there's no peace there. But you know, ultimately, true peace can only be accomplished and complete peace can only be accomplished by the blood of the cross. And we know that, right? The scriptures say that it's Christ who breaks down the dividing wall of hostility, right? So it can only come through him, a lasting eternal peace. So um, for the latter parts of that question, you know, when should we cut off? I think that requires some discernment, but I do think there are points where that does need to happen, right? Um, the scriptures, uh, specifically the Proverbs, um, speak of the scoffer, you know, someone who hears wisdom, hears the truth, and yet rejects it and actually, you know, even goes beyond rejecting it and so oh, that's not for me, but laughs at it, mocks it, scoffs at it, right? And then there are scriptures that speak of don't cast your pearls, what's valuable to you before swine, Right, so you know, if someone is giving you a hard time, there's no peace there. You you try to bring the gospel into it, but then it's trampled upon, insulted, that type of thing. Then that would be an indication that okay, maybe this is not the right approach at this time, you know, for this person, and I may need to walk away from this, right? Because the the priority of the gospel and the glory of the gospel is just being trampled upon in that case, right? And the scriptures call us, okay, let's walk away from that. Let's dust off our feet and let's move on. Thanks, JC. Ted, anything you wanted to add there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that you grow in wisdom discernment in terms of separation. You know, just what are the things that we're to not be a part of? Um, you know, 2 Corinthians 6, do not be un unequally yoked with unbelievers. This isn't just talking about marriage between a believer and unbeliever or a dating couple. It's talking about all relationships. We're not to be unequally yoked. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, right? Um, you know, and as Kevin mentioned, you know, the goal at the end of the day isn't to be at peace, right? That we can make that an idol, you know, and that is something we are to pursue, but we understand that that's not possible apart from the cross, right? So true peace you can't have apart from two people being believers, true believers, who are pursuing the cross and pursuing submission to the Lordship of Christ. Apart from that, there's no true peace. There's superficial peace. There could be, you know, a facade of peace, but there's not true peace, right? And uh, at the end of the day, our ultimate goal is to be pleasing to Christ. It's to represent Him. It's to bear testimony of who He is in our lives. It's not to have peace, Right? And so oftentimes we do pursue peace at the expense of compromising truth or compromising our testimony because whatever reason, we don't, you know, don't want to rock the boat, you know, we don't want to say something that's going to make things awkward. Right? But at the end of the day, we have to be pleasing to Christ and sometimes that requires faithfulness, even if it's not going to be received well, even if it might create division. Right? And we just talked about church unity and we're not to create division, but this is a different type of division because Christ says when he came, he came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword, right? And those who are family members, they may become our enemies. Why? As Kevin said, it's hopefully not because we're being jerks and we're being obnoxious and we're being a stumbling block. It's because now Christ, we belong to Christ. And as we live out his gospel, that's going to be offensive to people. 
And so it's an illusion for us as Christians to think that we could be at peace with all men. It says, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. But that's not always possible. But what you can do is, whether there's peace or not, you can be pleasing to Christ. Right? You can be faithful to him. How? By being faithful to his word, by walking in his spirit, right? And just representing him faithfully, right? And you're not going to please everyone, right? This is what we're learning this summer, fear of man, right? That's our idol oftentimes, rather than the fear of the Lord, right? So, yeah, it takes biblical discernment when to make that separation, you know? Um, and I think it, you know, here's where the word helps. Here's where the church helps, you know, here's where you pursue shepherding and counsel from godly men and women in your life who can speak the truth and point you to Christ. Yeah, thanks for that reminder that our allegiance is to Christ. It's not to, you know, be on good terms with, with everyone in this world. And, yeah, I think it's a, yeah, insightful to see that that could be an idol in, in and of itself to try to be on everyone's good side. And, you know, yeah, but thanks for those reminders. Um, it is almost 9.30, but maybe we can squeeze in one more question or so, um, depending on how time permits. So this question is on difficult family members. Uh, the question is, how to practically love difficult parents and family members, or how do you practically love difficult parents or family members who are believers? And then uh, same question for, for unbelieving parents or, or family members as well. I think we all have difficult family members. I mean, I just think of Kevin and, and JC's family too, my own family. Um, it's not an accident. God didn't put them in our lives to make our lives difficult for no reason, right? And when he's sovereign over these relationships, right, we can come to these difficult situations or different, difficult people and think about, okay, how can I fix them? How can I get rid of them? How can I make life easier for myself? when really our perspective is backwards. God brings difficult people in our lives to sanctify us, right? To show us where we need to grow, to show us where we lack faith, to show us where we lack patience, to show us where we lack love, right? To show us where we lack forgiveness, right? And so I think even before we think about what can we do for them, it's, okay, how do we, how, what is the Lord trying to, how is the Lord trying to grow me in him through these difficult people in my life, right? And that's been, a constant thing for me and Becky because we do have difficult members of family, family members in our lives and it's easy to think about, oh, this person did that and that person did, but you miss the point. Christ is trying to sanctify us. If we belong to him, he is determined to grow us to be like Christ. And you look at Christ, he had difficult people all throughout his life, right? Even his own family members, right? Gave him a hard time and yet Christ responded perfectly. God, Christ responded in love every single time, right? Whereas we all fail, right? And so what is Christ trying to do with these difficult people? Or what is God trying to do? He's trying to make us more like Christ. And so when you have, if you have difficult people in your life, and we all do, look to Christ. You know, spend time in the Gospels. Look at his life. Look at how he interacted, right? And, and pray that the Lord would change us to be more like Christ through difficult family members. Um, and then just to, after you've done all that, and that's an ongoing process, pray for them and serve them. Because that's what Christ did for all these difficult people in his life. 
You know, did he want to serve a guy like the disciple Peter who had a big mouth and, you know, made life hard? No, he just humbled himself and, and served Peter and served these guys, was patient with them, prayed for them, right? I think we can find encouragement that we can be faithful to him even when people don't change. And that's not on us to change them, right? We come in with this, I'm the doctor, I'm the engineer, I'm the guy that's going to come in and fix the relationship or fix this person. And God never meant that to be the way, right? It's for us to, to pray to him and trust that the Holy Spirit would be the one to change hearts while at the same time praying that the Lord would change our own hearts. Um, yeah, um, the, the question sort of divided between family who are believers and those who are unbelievers. And, you know, for, as far as family who are believers is concerned, you know, I, I think all the things that the scriptures call us to do, all the one another's, even though that is in the context of the local church, you know, if your family is a believer, they are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And so we can treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that's obvious, but you know, but many times obvious things are not so obvious to us, right? Where we almost treat our family a little bit different um, in those ways in that like, okay, you know, showing love and kindness, you know, I'll do that with church members, but family, they're different. You know, I can be a little bit different with them, right? So I, I would say they're brothers and sisters in Christ uh, for believing family members, even if they're difficult. Sometimes family is more difficult just because we're around them more, you know, they know how to push our buttons, that type of thing, but they're not exempt or somehow outside of all the one another's that we're called to in the local church body as well, because they're part of the body of believers, you know. Um, First Thessalonians 5.14, a favorite of mine, comes into play too. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That includes family, right? So your family falls into um, the application of that verse as well, especially be patient with them all, right? Um, for an unbelieving family member, Ted already mentioned it, we need to be faithful in prayer. You know, that has to be there. That's the best way that we can love unbelieving family member is to be, you know, faithful in prayer, you know. And for unbelieving family members, you know, I, I do think they're your family, you know, and there's an aspect of the scriptures say if you, we don't care for our family members as far as, you know, physical needs are concerned, we're worse than a believer. So, you know, certainly there's an aspect of taking care of your family that, that's there as well. But, you know, I would also say that you also don't want to blur the lines and confuse the fact that, you know, Christ and his will and his lordship comes first. And if there is a compromise there, then Christ has to come first. Like Ted mentioned, you know, Christ had, you know, family members that were difficult as well. But, and what did Christ say? Um, what did Christ say? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Christ is not saying, okay, you need to go out and hate your family, right? But he's saying that, my priority is to do the will of my Father. And nothing else comes close, right? So yes, we need to care for our families, but if that ever gets in the way of us doing the will of God and following Christ, then the priority is very clear there. Uh, yeah, Second Corinthians 5, 9 to 10. Um, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. 
for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we're not here to, um, ultimately, we're here to please Christ. Uh, not our parents, right? Um, not our in-laws, you know, family members. It's Christ whom we aim to please. And because of that, and as uh, Ted and Kevin mentioned, you will make decisions that, may, that they may not like, even if they are believers. Because maybe culturally, they just have a set of mindset that, you know, just, you know, they're just in that old pattern, basically. But when, you, when the rubber meets the road, when you meet that, and then when you come to that point that, okay, yeah, we'll have to make this decision, you know, whether a decision about finances, decision about, um, yeah, where you're gonna stay, uh, where you're gonna live, all these things. You know, if your parents or your family members are believers, you could say, this is what the Bible says. And that's the theme of Summer Logos, right? Biblical decision making. And when we make decisions, we will not be able to please everyone. Ultimately, we're here to please Christ, right? And yeah, we just have to trust and obey Christ and cherish Christ. Love God, love God above all else. That's what matters. Love Christ. And then when we abide in Him, then we will bear fruit. Even to the point that, yeah, like Christ, He suffered. People rejected Him, even though He was doing the will of the Father. Even if you do the will of the Father, yeah, your family might reject you, your family might not like what you're doing, but ultimately you're here to please Christ. Yeah, yeah thanks for the reminder and pointing back to the example of Christ himself. And yeah, his, you know, it was, his food was to do the will of the Father. And um, yeah, but even in that, being patient with, with unbelieving and difficult family members and showing love still. Um, yeah, thanks for those reminders. Uh, it is a little over time, but we just have one more question, so I think we'll just try to answer them all uh, if we can. Um, yeah, so the last question actually is, um, it, it's, it's about those who have left our church. Uh, what would be some biblical principles to consider as we relate to those who have left the church in a discouraging way. Um, basically, how to consider those who left, but being mindful of how it affects our body. First John 2. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. In the previous verse, which sets the context, says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Right, so people do leave our church, some for good reasons, others for not, but how do you distinguish, right? And the question we need to ask is, are they leaving to follow Christ? 
Or are they following something other than Christ? That's anti-Christ, right? It's not necessarily the anti-Christ, but the spirit of the anti-Christ, which is you're following a path that leads away from Christ, right? And so it could be something as benign or, you know, respectable as a career. It could be family. It could be relationships. But is it done, as JC mentioned, are we doing it to... Is our aim to be pleasing to Christ? Are they doing it out of faith in Christ, you know, for the glory of Christ, or is, it, is there another motivation or reason that they're pursuing these things, right? And I think we have to distinguish between those things because not everybody who leaves for bad reasons, not everybody leaves for good reasons, um, but as the question's asking, what do we do with those who don't leave on the best terms? Well, uh, first, the implications is we shouldn't be surprised when people leave our church, right? It says in verse 19, it's God allows these things to reveal that not everyone is of us. So God is doing some pruning, right? God is doing some purifying of the church. When people leave, it's God's sovereign plan that not everybody who says they're a part of the church truly are. And these things sort of play itself out, right? Time tells whether they're truly following Christ or they're here for something else. I can't tell, looking at an audience of 100 people, who's here for Christ, who's not. But time will tell, as the Lord brings heat, you know, those who leave, and they, you see that the pattern of their life, the direction of their life, the path they're walking is not of Christ, right? we shouldn't be surprised. Right? But then, second, we should also be sad or discouraged, of course. Right? But I think the question we have to ask is, do we, are we sad and discouraged because of a loss of relationship, or are we more burdened because they're not walking well with Christ? Right? Of course it's sad. We hung out last week. I had dinner with this person three weeks ago. We had such a great time. I don't want to dismiss the value of that, but the greater priority is their walk with Christ. And so if they're leaving for a reason other than Christ, that should grieve our hearts because it grieves our Savior's heart, too, right? But then thirdly, you know, love compels us to pray for them, right? It's not out of sight, out of mind. Well, they've left our church. I don't want anything to do with them. No. Is that what Christ would do? Right? Christ prays for us, right, while we were enemies, while we were yet sinners. And so even when they're on that path and... You know, hopefully they are believers and the Lord will bring repentance and shine the light into their lives that will sh sort of show, redirect them back to, to Christ's path. But even then, are we faithful to pray for them, right? Uh, as opposed to shunning them, uh, as opposed to avoiding them, as opposed to ignoring them. Are we praying for them uh, because we care for them, because that is the love of Christ? Um, and so, yeah, those are some th things to think about. Yeah, um, I'll just add a little bit more to that. I, I think there's maybe also a distinction um, if someone is actively being divisive. You know, I think you, you, there can be certain discouragements when when people leave, but if there is sowing division in the body in their manner, um, I, I think that calls for something different or something more, I would say. You know, of course, we still want to speak the truth and love and all the things that, you know, Ted mentioned. Um, 
But, you know, Titus 3.10, person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You know, I, I think if someone is stirring division in the body, they're not contributing to the union. You can leave in a way that then doesn't, you know, compromise the unity of the body, right? But you can leave in a way that constantly tries to undermine the unity of the body. Now that's happening. Uh, someone discourages you from being unified with the body or acts as an impediment to it, then, then that's a problem, right? And I think for someone like that, they're not loving you. Even though they've left, you know, there's an aspect of you are still committed to this church. This is what Christ calls you to, and they're actively impeding you from doing what Christ calls you to. That's not loving. I would speak the truth in love. You know, you know I, I don't know if you intend this, but it's not loving for what Christ wants me to do. You're not encouraging me towards obeying Christ, and that's not the best thing for you. So speaking the truth, you know, gently as much as you can, but that's essentially what's going on when the seeds of division are being sown. Thanks. JC, anything you wanted to... Um, yeah, uh, remember last Sunday's sermon, right, about the body of Christ, that we are, you know, members of the body, but ultimately it's one body. I'll just read Ephesians 4, uh, which is connected to Sunday's sermon. Uh, I, therefore... Uh, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy, worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to, to the measure of Christ's gift. So we are the body of Christ, right? And so just remember, for those who left, um, yeah, we, it, it's, yeah, it's painful. It's, you know, it hurts at first, but don't let, you know, there's also the aspect of spiritual warfare. Like two chapters later in Ephesians 6, Paul tells the Ephesians church about there is warfare. The Ephesians 6, let me just read this. Um, this is very important. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may, not, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The enemy would want to discourage you, would want to put doubts and lies to you, you know, to make you like a member, just like the hand or the foot. Oh, I do not belong to the body, you know, or whatever that selfish ambition or self-centered attitude in our flesh that can be, you know, that we can be tempted of. And so just guard our hearts and minds of that because 
Remember, we have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy the body of Christ. But the good news is that our hope is not in, in men, not in our church friends, but it's in Christ, right? It's in Christ. So we continue to walk in Him, to love Him, and to abide in Christ. So, yeah. Yeah, thank you guys for just the reminder to, yeah, pursue unity and, yeah, to be concerned with, um, yeah, this person's soul, right, or people who left, right? we, we are to pray for them, we're to speak the truth in love, um, but while, all, you know, ultimately still pursuing the unity of the body. So thank you guys, and thank you guys for, um, yeah, for just pointing us to the word in all of these different questions. You know, we covered a, a wide range of different types of relationships, but ultimately we, we, need, to, we need to rely on God's word. So thank you guys for that. Uh, well, that concludes our questions and the Q&A for today. Uh, I'll just give a few quick announcements and then um, read one more passage in scripture and then I'll close in prayer. Um, so for the announcements uh, for Lagos, yeah, as you know, this is our last gathering for the summer and we'll be on break for the rest of the month. Uh, the first meeting for Lagos in the upcoming fall semester is planned to be in early September. So please stay tuned for announcements uh, in the coming weeks for some additional details, including signups for uh, discipleship groups. So yeah, just please stay tuned for those announcements. Uh, Sunday, as you all know, there's a new start time starting this Sunday, August 6th. The start time is moving from 9.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. So please make sure to uh, set your alarm clocks accordingly. Um, and lastly, there is an all-church uh, summer picnic uh, as well this coming Sunday at Ponderosa Park in Sunnyvale. Uh, sandwiches and water will be provided, but you're also encouraged to bring your own snacks or treats to supplement your lunch. So a little bit different from the last time, but hope to see you guys all there. All right, with that, I'm actually going to read one more passage from the book of James, chapter 1, verse 19 to 24, to close us out. James 1.19, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of God, or, sorry, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So just a reminder for all of us to, you know, as we heard the different truths today in how to deal with and navigate different relationships, um, you know, we're to be doers of the word now, not just hearers. I know that's, that is the difficult part, right, to put these things into practice with, you know, the relationships that we're going back to. Um, but, you know, that's, we have the Lord and we have the Spirit working in us to, to help us through these things. Let me just uh, close us with one last word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today, uh, just allowing the, uh, or just speaking through the elders and, and JC on these different topics for uh, difficult family members, coworkers, 
uh, dating couples, uh, even church members who have left. Uh, Lord, there are many challenges and uh, just different decisions we need to make in terms of our interactions with these uh, people. But Lord, we're thankful for the reminder that you've given us to look to your word, uh, to consider how we are walking with you and that these relationships are ultimately to uh, simply be an expression of our worship to you and our love for you. Um, Lord, would you allow, uh, would you help us by um, reminding us that uh, your spirit is working in us uh, to help us and to uh, remind us of your word, and your truths um, as we uh, interact with different people in our lives. Uh, and Lord, would you help us uh, not to sin, to, to repent from sin, whether it's bitterness, anger, uh, impatience. Um, and Lord, that we would ultimately put on love and that we would, we would act in a way that uh, displays our love for you, first and foremost, but also a love for, uh, for the souls that uh, you've put in our lives. So we thank you again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.